Let's uh, begin with prayer to our great God. Lord, we come recognizing that you alone are great. And we come thankful this morning that, Lord, you refuse to leave us alone in terms of changing us, transforming us, challenging us, encouraging us, taking parts off us and putting new parts in. We thank you for your work of sanctification, of making us holy, making us into the image of your great son, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, in this time in the word that this would just be another small step in that process, that you would, by spirit and word this morning, increase our faith. Lord God, come among us, show us marvelous things from your word, and may your spirit be our guide and our helper. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. World War I lasted from 1914 until 1918. And up until 1917, the Canadian Corps, the Canadian forces, had always received their orders from the British High Command. But in the summer of 1917, there would begin a new operation that was the first operation with the Canadian Corps being commanded by their own Canadian general. And this was the battle for the French mining town of Lens during the summer of 1917. The British general, Douglas Haig, had concluded that a direct attack on this town would be most effective in dislodging the German army who were already there occupying the town. They had had the town since 1914, in fact. However, the Canadian general, Arthur Currie, decided to study the terrain, to study the topography around the town of Lens. Curry went out one morning behind the Canadian lines and he laid down on a hill and he studied the terrain around the town of Lens for the entire morning and he concluded from those hours of surveying the land that the best approach was not to attack the town directly as Haig had supposed, but rather to fight for the capture of Hill 70, a small hill just to the northeast of the town. German artillery was already dug in on Hill 70, protecting the town of Lens from the high ground. And Curry surmised that if they could capture the high ground, they would be in an advantageous position to take over and overtake and capture the town itself. Well, this story of the Battle of Hill 70 is personal to me since both my grandfather, pictured top left, and my granduncle Ira saw combat there at the tender ages of 19 and 21. Now, in my grandfather's diary, he wrote that the morning after his platoon's initial attack on Hill 70, only six men out of the 40 that had been in that platoon answered roll call. And two of those six men were himself and his brother, 
pictured on screen. The other 34 men had either been killed or were missing. And indeed, the fighting at Hill 70 was brutally fierce. The losses for the Canadians just on that first day had been over a thousand men. Well, friends, I thought of General Arthur Curry lying on the hill before the battle, surveying the scene, strategizing. I thought of that story when I read the initial words of this morning's preaching text. Just before we go there, just a little bit of context here that may be helpful to us. God had exercised over 600 years of patience with the people who occupied the land of Canaan. 600 years prior to this moment that we are about to look at in Joshua 5, God had talked to Abraham about the iniquity of the Amorites. The iniquity of the people who occupied the land of Canaan and how at the time of Abraham, at least, that iniquity of the Amorites, God had said, was not yet complete. God had a meter, a sin meter, a sin thermometer, if we like, for the Amorites. The boiling point of the Amorite sin had not yet come in Abraham's day, but now, 600 years later, 600 years of God waiting patiently for the people in Canaan to repent, now their sin meter had peaked, and the warrior, Joshua, and Israel with him, was tasked with the job of entering the land of Canaan to capture it. So now, after 600 years of God's patience and forbearance from that time of Abraham, the Canaanites would now find themselves under attack. Now God would fulfill his promise to Abraham to drive out the inhabitants of the land and give the land to Israel. The initial words of Joshua 5.13 are these, when Joshua was by Jericho. The battle for Jericho, which was the first major battle in the land of Canaan, hadn't happened at this point in the text. Joshua is by Jericho. What's Joshua doing? Well, no doubt Joshua is surveying the territory, just as Arthur Curry had done at Hill 70 prior to the battle. Joshua is a good military commander. Joshua is sizing up the situation and perhaps as he looks, Joshua takes note of the size of Jericho, that it has a circumference of around 2,000 feet, not terribly large. And no doubt, Joshua also notices the heavily fortified nature of this garrison town. The town is surrounded by high, thick walls that appear to be impenetrable. And Joshua recognizes also that, that since Israel has only recently come out of their long journey away from Egypt, they lack 
effective military equipment for such a job. Joshua looks at those imposing walls around Jericho and perhaps he wonders how in the world they will breach those walls without having battering rams or ladders or catapults of any kind. What will be the strategy? How will they have success? He wonders, he looks, he thinks. And Joshua probably also understands how important this location is from a strategic perspective, how Jericho is really the gateway into Canaan from the east, located close to a crossable part of the Jordan River. The city of Jericho was in an important strategic location and the battle for the city would be a crucially important battle. Well, as Joshua mulls over this whole situation, he lifts up his eyes and looks, and behold, very suddenly and without any solicitation, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And so friends, now Joshua is confronted by two imposing realities. First, the heavily fortified town of Jericho that he's just been surveying and looking at, and now this stranger with his sword drawn. Now, if you're confronted by a man with a drawn sword, you need to proceed carefully, yes? Such a person is not to be trifled with. Joshua goes to the man and says to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? In colloquial terms, Joshua asks, are you for us or again us? Whose side are you on, stranger? Are you friend or are you foe? Are you with Israel or are you with Jericho and Canaan? And the man replies, no. <laughs> or in the, the uh, New International Version, the man replies, neither. Or in the New Jerusalem Bible, the man says to Joshua, I am on neither side. Or in the New Living Translation, neither one. The man continues by saying to Joshua, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord, of Yahweh. Now I have come, and it's at this point, friends, that the lights go on for Joshua. Joshua now realizes that the person standing in front of him with the drawn sword is more than just a person. This is nothing less than a manifestation of God himself standing there in front of Joshua. Joshua finds himself speaking now with the supreme commander of the heavenly army. And so Joshua does what is fitting in such a situation. Joshua fell on his faith, face to the earth and worshiped and the figure who is standing in front of Joshua does nothing to stop that worship 
like an angel would do if this were an angel. The strange man accepts the worship of Joshua. Why? Because the man is a self-manifestation, a theophany, a self-manifestation of Yahweh. This man is deserved of Joshua's worship. Joshua had asked whose side this mysterious man was on, and the man had replied, neither. You see, the question that Joshua had asked, although I think it was a natural question, I probably would have asked it too under the circumstances, but the question that he asked turned out to be a misplaced question. Because in fact, the question was not whose side this man was on, but rather the question really was whose side Joshua and Israel were on. Were they on the side of the man? The question was not as much whether God would fight for Israel, but rather would Israel fight for God? As Bob Beasley has put it, what Joshua needed to understand in this moment is that he was there to serve God's purposes. God was not there to serve Joshua's purpose. Joshua was there to serve God's purposes of doing what? Of securing the land of Canaan for Israel in keeping with the covenant that God had made with Abraham hundreds of years prior. Are you for us or for our adversaries? You know, friends, sometimes in our lives, when our plans are not working out, we might ask a similar question. God, are you for me or against me? And in asking that question, there there can be a desire in us, check yourself, there can be a desire in us to harness God to our plans. Yes? But my friends, God will not be harnessed to human plans. Mark it. God will not be harnessed to human plans. God wants us harnessed to his plans, which are always wiser and more fruitful than our plans. Friends, it is always wise for us to consider very seriously whether we are in fact submitting to God's plans and purposes or whether we are expecting and even demanding that God submit to our plans. And then to course correct, course correct if necessary, to bow humbly before him so that safely we come under the rubric of his designs and his plans for his world. Amen? Amen. After bowing on his face in worship before this mysterious man, Joshua asks, what does my Lord say to his servant? Now notice here how Joshua now, he humbly, right, submits himself to this figure. Joshua now sees himself as an inferior to the superiority of this man who is before him, and Joshua will listen to the man and do what the man says. Verse 15, and the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, what? Take off your sandals from your feet. 
for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Of course, in Exodus 3, at the burning bush, God had said the same thing to Moses. Exodus 3.5 has God saying this to Moses, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And that burning bush incident had happened, note this, it had happened just as God was about to bring his people out of Egypt using Moses as a human instrument for that purpose. Now, here beside Jericho, God was about to give his people the land of Canaan using Joshua as the instrument. Both men, Moses and Joshua, in those crucial moments of redemptive history are told to remove their sandals since they are standing on holy ground. Now, We must wonder what Joshua was hoping for when he asked the mysterious man, what does my Lord say to his servant? I wonder if Joshua was expecting this sword-wielding man to lay out for Joshua a detailed and comprehensive military strategy for the taking of Jericho. And if so, Joshua would be quite surprised to receive nothing of the sort from the man, at least initially. Instead of providing military strategy in verse 15, the man's priority for Joshua is that Joshua would remove his sandals in reverence. Joshua is in the presence of the holy. Yes? And as Bruce Waltke has put it, quote, reverence, he says, which is signified by removing all dirt from Yahweh's presence is more important than making war. Reverence, more important than making war in this moment. Joshua is being taught a few lessons here, I think, as he stands now on the threshold of warring against the Canaanites. Joshua is given this challenging appearance of God, and Joshua must now do what? He must show reverence, do reverence, and humble submission, and worship, and trust. Well, chapter 6 then begins with the description of Jericho itself. And specifically, verse 1 describes what we could call the defensive closing of Jericho to outsiders like the Israelites. Now Jericho was what? Shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. So the place is closed up, it is bolted shut, the doors are locked. An impenetrable fortress. Verse two, and the Lord said to Joshua, now notice, notice friends. Notice we go seamlessly from the appearance of the mysterious man who accepts Joshua's worship, now to this verse where suddenly the Lord is speaking. Notice that, the Lord here is the same as the mysterious man. 
Joshua is having an encounter with Yahweh who has appeared as a man to Joshua in this special case, in this special moment of redemptive history. And the Lord continues to speak to Joshua saying, see, notice what he says. Jericho is shut up, bolted up, it's impregnable. God says, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. Notice, friends, very carefully the tone of God's speech here. God says to Joshua, essentially, it's as good as done, Joshua. I have already secured victory over Jericho. I have given Jericho into your hand. Joshua, you have my assurance right now that their main leaders, their king and his mighty men of valor are already defeated because I have defeated them. God talks here as if the battle, battle is already over, already decided before it's even begun. And of course, What God says here to Joshua is directly in line with what God had already said to Joshua. For example, God had already told Joshua back in chapter one, verse two, thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times. Notice the 777 here and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Now, as a sort of summary of these verses, God's basic plan here is this, Seven-day campaign of marching, trumpet playing, and finally, shouting. Now we notice that there's nothing in these three verses about sharpening swords, drawing swords, using defensive shields, the employment of spears, slings with stones, There's no instruction here about troops doing flanking maneuvers or organizing a morning surprise attack. It's just this marching with the playing of shofars or trumpets and then the final shout. That's it. It strikes us as a very odd military strategy, does it not? (laughs) From a human perspective, it's, it's... We could say it's really the definition of unconventional. And to make matters worse, friends, at least from our perspective, notice how God puts the bulk of the focus on what the pastors are to do here. What the priests are to do with their trumpets. Seven priests bearing seven trumpets and playing those trumpets. And the question we might ask very well here as we read the text is this. Are pastors playing trumpets really the best military strategy on the front lines of battle? Wouldn't you rather prioritize the deployment of your trained, elite, JTF2-type soldiers? 
in the U.S. Civil War, there was an Episcopal bishop, a pastor named Leonidas Polk, who was given the role of commander on the Confederate side. And it turned out that it was a mistake to make Polk a pastor, to make him a military commander. One historian has called Polk incompetent. It's the word he used in terms of his military career. Polk had precious little success commanding troops on the battlefield, and as it turned out, Polk was killed in action in 1864. The point is that pastors don't make great military commanders unless they have years of battlefield experience and have the requisite military smarts. Don't make me a commander, please. And so this whole setup in Joshua 6 sounds rather bizarre to our ears, does it not? No mention of regular issue, weaponry, priests taking the starring role. Almost as if God was purposely diluting or minimizing the standard human methods and standard military strategies for victory in battle. And indeed he was. It's exactly what he was doing. It's worth pointing out here that according to Deuteronomy 20, the priests did have a role in Israel's battles. Part of that role was to encourage the people by reminding them that it was God who would fight for them. God who would secure the victory. Deuteronomy 20 verses three and four give us the standard speech that the priests were to give just prior to Israel's battles. The priests were to say to Israel, here, listen to this great speech, hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies, it's imminent. Let not your heart faint, do not fear or panic or be in dread of them, why? For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. And we note especially there toward the end of those verses again, just to make sure we've got it, that the priest's job is to remind Israel who was really fighting for them, yes? Who it was who would gain the victory, it was God. And as concerns the battle for Jericho, what we need to see is how in the text itself, the word ark appears repeatedly scattered throughout the text. So in, in verse four, the priests bear their trumpets before the ark. In verses six through 13 of Joshua six, the word ark appears a total of another nine times. The Ark of the Covenant was what? It was where God dwelt in between the cherubim and his name, Yahweh, appears eight times in those same verses, verses six through 13. The idea with all this repetition of phrases like the Ark of the, of the Covenant, the Ark of Yahweh, all this repetition here is to emphasize again who the main combatant in the battle really was. It wasn't the human men of war. It wasn't the human priests. It wasn't the human Joshua. It was the Lord. 
The battle was the Lord's. The battle would be won by the Lord in keeping with his promise that Israel would have the land of victory was already a done deal because the Lord would fight for his people. The difference in the battle would not be because of Israel's latest military tech or because of the numbers of their troops or their strategy. The difference would be none other friends than the living God. And if we recall that loud trumpets sounded in that great moment when God descended on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. The trumpet sounded when the divine king arrived on that mountain. If we recall that, then the priests blowing trumpets here at Joshua, or at Jericho, sorry, takes on profound significance. The trumpets blast signals to those inside the walls of Jericho that the king of the universe has now arrived on their doorstep. The true king of Jericho is now here. The divine warrior is here and any resistance will be futile. My friends in Christ, can we see here how God has purposely avoided using the standard military strategy for the taking of Jericho. Can we see that? Why has he done this exactly? Well, I can't put it any better than Dale Ralph Davis has put it. I want you to listen to this. Davis says this. Sometimes it seems God insists on bypassing his people's activity in order to enhance his own glory among his people. Let me read that sentence to you again. I think it's important. Davis says, sometimes it seems God insists on bypassing his people's activity in order to enhance his own glory among his people. And he continues, if Israel only marches and shouts, there will be no doubt about who batters Jericho to the ground. And he says further, since we have this tendency to obscure God's splendor and to steal his praise, he sometimes sets our contributions aside so that we and others can perceive the reality that is in 2 Corinthians 4-7, that the overwhelming power comes from God and not from us. Yes, to God be the glory always. The battle is his. Now the climactic moment we've all been waiting for <laughs> of the whole episode, it comes in verse 20, the people shout on day seven and God causes the walls of Jericho to fall down and Israel captures the city and of course, this is the part of the story that many of us learned in our Sunday school days, yes? But I want us to notice something that I think is quite important in this chapter. If you have a Bible open, take note of the fact that the shouting, the shouting just before the walls collapse, is commanded by Joshua 
in verse 16. Okay, so in verse 16, the priests blow the trumpets and Joshua says to the people in that moment, shout for the Lord has given you the city. And then we would expect, would we not, that the very next verse would read something like this. And the people shouted and the walls collapsed. But we don't get that. What we notice is that right after Joshua gives the command to shout, he launches immediately into a three-verse speech, not giving the people the opportunity to shout. So Joshua commands the people to shout, verse 16, and it's like they're about to shout, and then they have to hold their breath for three verses while they wait for Joshua to stop talking. It's not until verse 20 that they follow the command to shout. We have this intervening speech in verses 17 through 19. And the focus of this three-verse speech, note carefully, is what Israel must do with the inhabitants of Jericho and the items that they find in Jericho. All of it... All of it is to be devoted to the Lord, no exceptions, save Rahab. Joshua commands the people of Israel to obey in these verses. These orders he gives concerning the inhabitants, the items of Jericho, must be followed to the letter. And in these verses, he gives a warning also for disobedience. So that's the focus of his speech. It's three verses long. The actual collapse of the walls is described in only a few short words within a single verse in verse 20. Almost as if what Joshua has to say to Israel in that climactic moment just before they shout, verses 17 through 19, is of greater importance than the actual collapse of the walls. And indeed, the very next chapter of Joshua, the whole of chapter 7 deals with disobedience to what Joshua had commanded. The man Achan decided to violate Joshua's orders and take some of the devoted things into his tent. And because of that violation of one man, all of Israel suffers a humiliating defeat in their next battle. God does not fight for them due to the disobedience of Achan. And so friends, notice well, notice well, that there is a priority placed on the obedience of God's people. Yes, the necessity of obedience to God's commands if God's people expect God to fight for them. And we know that ultimately, a disobedient Israel wound up with God fighting against them. God used the Assyrian army and God used the Babylonian army to war against and to gain victory over his disobedient people and to send them into exile. There is a priority 
on obedience. Coming back to Jericho, God fought for Israel in this instance. God, the divine warrior, was unstoppable. He was victorious for Israel in this battle. God caused those walls to fall down flat. Joshua and the people of Israel, for their part in that moment, they had faith in God to win the victory, which is exactly what Hebrews 11.30 reports when it says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, the walls fell down. It wasn't by battering rams that the walls fell down. It was by faith in the mighty divine warrior who caused the walls to fall down. I have a question, church, and it's this. Are we exercising faith that God can collapse what seem like indestructible walls. If the destruction of those walls, whatever the walls may be, if it serves to advance his purpose, do we have faith that he can bring the walls down? Are we exercising faith? Are we living faithfully in our weakness? Obeying the Lord in the power that he supplies. Well, this morning, We've attempted to highlight the strange way, and it is strange, the strange way in which God won this victory. No weaponry used against these walls. Priests of all people, pastors playing such a prominent role in the operation. But perhaps the strangest method that God ever used in securing his greatest victory was the cross. In order to overcome the enemies of sin, death, and the devil, what did God do? Well, he laid our iniquity, our sin, on his willing son. And then he poured out his wrath on that sin. And the son of God died and this, of all things, of all things, was the way in which God won his astounding victory over our fiercest enemies. Yes? What looked like a great defeat, if you were standing there on the ground, what looked like a great defeat was in fact God's greatest victory whereby God forgave us, his believing people, of our sin, declared us righteous, vanquished the devil and overturned death for us when Jesus was raised from the dead three days later. And God did all this by himself, amen? By himself, without any human counsel, without any human strategy. On the cross and in the resurrection, God the divine warrior was fighting for his people. He was winning the decisive, irreversible victory. Praise him, praise him this morning. Believer in Jesus, it is by faith in him. Where's your faith this morning? It is by faith in him that you overcome in this life, amen? 
faith in him. Just as it was by faith that Joshua and the, and the people overcame their obstacles in Canaan, trusting the Lord for victory while living faithfully in obedience. Believer in Jesus, you serve a great king with all power. And I invite you this week to spend, go to him and spend quality undistracted time with him, quiet yourself before him, humble yourself before him, seek him with the same question that Joshua asked. What does my Lord say to his servant? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are a great king. And we have so much assurance and so much peace because of who you are and because you are the living God who fights for his people. And I pray, Lord, as we go out into the world this week in our own individual circumstances, with our own individual challenges, that your Holy Spirit would remind us of this word, Lord God, in a powerful, life-giving, assuring way and that we would have victory this week in all that we face. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.